Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. In this episode, I give you my recent Dharma talk called The Wings of Awakening. And in this talk, I try to explore two broad aspects of the meditative process. And those two aspects involve the development of skills that relate to how we relate to ourselves and our experience. So there's the the relational side of practice. And I also speak about the... uh, the perceptual skills, or the other aspect of practice known as the development of clear perception, how we come to see our experience with greater and greater clarity. And the two work hand in hand. They're not really separate from each other. They are very intimately connected, but it can be helpful to think about them individually uh, before you try to put them together and experience them in our practice. So the side of relationship, or skillful relationship, involves cultivating, well, first becoming aware of chronic habit patterns or conditioned patterns of behavior in relationship. And then in seeing those reactive conditioned patterns starting to develop greater capacity for compassion and kindness towards ourselves and our experience. So compassion really summarizes the relational development in practice. And then on the wisdom side, as um, as our perception gets sharper, we start to see with greater and greater clarity the nature of our experience whereby our, our, our experience is imbued with characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and um, voidness of separate self, which is a little bit confusing and something I'll be talking about in future episodes. But um, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And um, if you're interested in a retreat, if you're interested in participating in a silent online retreat with me and Terry, we have an upcoming retreat from December 6th to, through 12th where you can really dive deeper into your meditation and yin yoga practice. So if you're interested in that, please check out uh, the link that will be included in the show notes on the retreat. Or if you'd like to participate in the Sangha events, meaning our weekly classes that include weekly meditation, yin yoga, yin yoga and qigong, and yang yoga. If you'd like to participate in those classes, either online live or through our recorded archive of classes um, on, in the library on my site. You can also check out information around the Sangha participation and registration in the link in the show notes. But I hope you're all doing well, and I hope you enjoy today's talk on the Wings of Awakening. think about our meditation practice, you know, it's helpful to sort of remind ourselves from time to time what the big picture is about. And um, as I try to say in most of my, many of my classes or in trainings, there tends to be a widespread view that meditation is a practice where you uh, attain something. You, you, you sit down and you, you do a, a technique of some sort, whether it's focusing on the breath or a part of your body or a mantra, you do a technique and then you're meant to come out the other side of the practice in an altered state and usually in a more improved, calm, clear, uh, quiet, compassionate state. And, um, 
what's hard to get a handle of in the beginning of this approach to practice is that, uh, and this isn't just my approach, but this is sort of the traditions that emphasize wisdom, the wisdom paths, as opposed to sort of the transcendent paths, but the wisdom paths assert again and again and again that the the heart of practice is not about attaining a particular state or getting a particular experience, but the, the heart of practice is really developing a deep experiential knowledge of the nature of all experiences. So all states, all conditions, all experiences are the, um, the, the learning curriculum through which we, we develop a new understanding of ourselves and our position in the world. And um, in alignment with that kind of central aim of practice to develop a, a, a direct experiential understanding of the nature of experience, um, I've been suggesting that when we meditate, there are two broad phases of practice or phases of experience that we'll inevitably encounter over and over again. Those are the phases of drifting off and the phases of waking up, or the drifting and the waking states. And last week, I tried to suggest that these can be thought of in terms of the yin and yang of practice, that you know, the, the, when we're awake and alert, that's more of a yang state, we're, we're bright and clear and conscious. And when we're kind of drifting, wandering in a, in a more dreamlike state, we're, we're, we're more in a yin mode, um, really starting to unearth and, and reveal some of our unconscious mind starts what's what's below the surface of our consciousness and what what, what lies beneath that. And the thing I want to add on or tack on to tonight, part of it is that um, if we come back to the central aim, which is to develop an understanding and knowledge of the nature of experience, um, philosophically, the way we come to knowledge is what the philosophers refer to as epistemology, sort of the, the, the method and, and means by which we come to know something, establish knowledge about something. So, so epistemologically, you know, when we're, when we're in a waking alert state, we could say that the, the central uh, means by which we come to understand is through a process of knowing. We, there's an awareness of what's occurring in real time. So when we're awake, we're, we're, we're in a position where we can really take sharp notice of what is occurring moment to moment. We can see, as the Buddhists often say, we can see a sound as a sound, a thought as a thought, a sensation as a sensation, when we're in a young, wakeful state. But when we're in a drifting state, where we're not aware that it's occurring, we're more in a, in a, in a trance or a, a hypnagogic state, as some of you were talking about last time, um, where you're, you're kind of in an altered dimension of yourself where you're not really clear that you're meditating anymore. You're, you're in an alternative world that your mind is self-generated. Um, when you're in that state, it's very hard or if not impossible to really capture it while it's occurring. It's, it's like, that's sort of the definition of drifting off that you're not there enough to know that it's occurring when it's occurring. Um, so what I tried to sit, sort of put on the map last week is that, when we're in a drifting state, it's not possible to get to know it in, in real time. Like in the moment, we can't capture necessarily all that's occurring, but we can get to know it in hindsight. And so we use the capacity of memory. Remembering is the, is the, is the epistemological means by which we come to get to know what goes on for us in the drifting state more than when we're in the waking state. 
So these are, I, I want to suggest these as two complementary modes of knowing. There's the real-time awareness that knows so when we're in a waking state, we can really capture what's going on there. And then in, when we uh, try to go through and review the content of our drifting states, we'll be using and, and, and deploying the capacity of memory for that. But this also then leads into the, the other theme I want to talk about tonight is that meditation or Dharma practice, if you will, really can be thought of as cultivating and um, maturing two complementary skills. There's the skills of relationship and skills of perception or relational components and perceptual components of practice. And we've we've been addressing, or I've been trying to address these all along. We, in fact, when we began working together in September, the first thing I tried to emphasize was uh, really intoning a, a strong intention to be kind and gentle and compassionate to yourself and your experience when you practice. Um, so that's part of the relational side. And, and really, on the relational side of the ledger, uh, when we first start practicing, normally what we first begin to encounter are simply our habitual reaction patterns. And that's what all the thrashing about in the beginning of a, a meditative uh, practice is about. When we sit down, we, we, we kind of tacitly agree with ourselves that we're not going to move around very much and we're just going to sit with what happens. The first wave or several waves of what we encounter tend to be the the strong currents or strong forces of our habitual energy, meaning that the mind that likes and wants to move and, and satisfy its likes by getting something, the mind that wants the dislikes and wants to satisfy its desires to get rid of something, or as I said a few weeks back, the desire to become somebody else that doesn't have any of this stuff to, to be bothered with. So we first encounter uh, the dukkha, the suffering of our habitual reactions, our habitual ways of being with experience. And then from admitting those habitual conditional reactions into consciousness, just become, by becoming more cognizant of them, we then lay the, the, the interior groundwork or space through which we can then start to cultivate um, sort of qualities of relationship that we uh, see or deem more valuable than, say, a cranky reaction habit pattern. So namely, we can start to cultivate kindness, or loving kindness and compassion towards our experience. Um, and in in the Buddhist world, um, the, the the idealized personification or the archetypical manifestation of compassion is um, in the subcontinent more kind of codified by the by the image of the god Avilokiteshvara, who is the god of compassion. And as Buddhism migrated east into china that that divine form uh, became feminine and the, the feminine manifestation of avilokiteshvara was kuan yin kuan yin was the goddess of compassion and i had heard this before but i double checked it i did was able to fact check this one um, her name literally means kuan yin literally means the one who listens to the sounds of the world the one who listens to the sounds of the world uh, and sometimes that word, the, the sounds, is translated as the cries. So one who listens to the cries or the sounds of the world. One who is, um, in some, some certain sense, empathically awake 
to the suffering of others. Now, one thing that's it's important to make a distinction here is that uh, in the Buddhist concept of the term suf- of compassion, it implies being sensitive to the suffering of others, being aware of the sensory sense uh, the suffering of others, but does not imply feeling the suffering of others directly. So you you know you can be fully aware that someone else is in distress and wish them to be relieved of that suffering, and maybe you even mobilize. Um, actions to help relieve that suffering, but you don't necessarily feel it yourself, um, and that's that's important to to mention so that you don't feel like you have to be flooded by the pains of everybody you see around you. But I want to suggest that in many ways, uh, if you are uh, working with at least the instructions that I've been trying to give, you are already beginning to align your practice and yourself around the ideal of the Kuan Yin expression of compassion by just listening to the sounds of your world. Now that means you're listening to external sounds in your environment, but more closer to home, we're listening in particularly to our minds, our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, and and in the, the drifting state of meditation, this is where we can really let that go on. So we get a full, full experience of what is going on under the hood more. And we can, by letting it go on, by by not interrupting it, by not cutting it off, by letting it do its thing, for the most part, um, we we really are like occupying this Kuan Yin position of listening, deep, deep listening to ourselves. Now, the danger uh, here, and I'm going to try to weave this together in a moment, but the danger of overemphasizing the compassionate side of, of listening to everything openly, of wanting the everything we encounter that's in distress to be relieved of that distress, to, to have, try to help mitigate suffering for ourselves and others. The, so the dark side of that energy is that it, if it's imbalanced, we can get, quickly get burnt out. And so this is the the, the classic um, the, he, the 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 wounded healer archetype the healer that uh, that that is so motivated and and, and animated by a, a compassion to help that they then sort of forget themselves back at home and 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 burn themselves out they sort of wear out. We, I was thinking of this when I um, saw a distressing headline that, and I'm not surprised by this, but it was a distressing headline nonetheless that. Um, uh, doctors and, and health care workers are starting to uh, abandon their profession as, as the pandemic wears on just because they, they aren't able to, um, to, to keep afloat with, with, with the incredible chronic stress that they're experiencing. And, I, and I, there's no judgment against that. I, I understand where, um, where that burnout can come from. But to help counter the tendency to potentially get burnt out with a, with a wide open heart of compassion. Um, in the Buddhist literature, compassion is framed as one wing that's paired with another wing. And the other, the second wing is wisdom. And if those two wings aren't equally developed or equally balanced, that's where we can, in our practice, kind of get into some difficulty or get into some potholes. So the wisdom side of, of practice is really where we start to emphasize, I would say, the more perceptual development or the perceptual skills uh, of, our, of our being, where we start to see more clearly and directly what's really happening without the distorting, 
um, influence of our conditioned reactions. So when we're not as 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 in, uh, like sort of fixed within our conditioned reactions, we're able to take a more sober, clear look at what's happening, and we start to see a thought as a thought, a sound as a sound, a sensation as a sensation, for example. But in Buddhism, the scene, the clear scene, is is really geared towards starting to appreciate directly that everything we see shares certain characteristics. Everything we encounter, everything we experience, and when I say scene, I don't mean just visual uh, scene, I mean what we see as, a, as an experiencing human, but everything we experience starts to share or seems to uh, possess certain characteristics. And one of those characteristics is that everything we see is changing. There's an impermanency or a transiency to the conditioned world we experience. And we can just start to see that in a very ordinary way in our practice. When we watch the body, we see a changing flow or a changing presentation of sensation. When we watch the mind, we see a changing flow of thought, of feeling, of emotion, of memory, of planning. We see all that, those conditions in a state of flux, in a state of change. Um, when we tune into the environment, we see that the sounds are coming and going, or the things we're noticing are coming and going. So this this universality of change that we start to tune into. And the reason why that gets emphasized is because when it flows into the next facet of the experiences we have is that as a as a consequence of the fact that everything is changing, the heart starts to get wiser and realize that no experience is capable of delivering lasting satisfaction. So this is the second characteristic that's often mentioned in Buddhism, that everything we experience is unsatisfactory. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not temporarily pleasant or that we don't we can't experience it and enjoy things. There's, there tends to be a, a way that uh, people, and I did this myself, but when people encounter this teaching of everything's unsatisfactory, um, it, it sort of becomes a, 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 a world-negating energy. You're like, well, if everything's unsatisfactory, then to hell with it all. I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to... I know that chocolate's there, and if I drink, to eat it, it's going to taste good, but it's impermanent, so it's unsatisfactory to hell with it. You fill in the blank with your, it's not a piece of chocolate for you, whatever it is. It's just, it's not so much that we can't enjoy pleasant things. It's just that we are, when our heart is wise, we know that we can enjoy pleasant things, but we're not deluded anymore into thinking that a pleasant thing, meaning a pleasant experience, is capable of providing lasting satisfaction. And so we don't invest all of our strategies for happiness and sanity and, and, and peace in our life into impermanent conditions, into impermanent conditions. This is what the, the Dharma in a way is, is, is saying, okay, this is what we normally do in the world. How's that been working for you? When I, when I encountered it, I realized it really wasn't working out so well. And then uh, the Dharma then says, well, okay, if, if that strategy isn't working so well, then let's find another one, which is to look in. And by looking in, we start to see, at first, we start to see the relentless way that we cling to things that are not capable of lasting satisfaction. 
And then seeing how we start to cling, the heart and mind start to let go a bit more, let go a bit, little bit by little bit. And the letting go, we start to experience what we talked about a few weeks back, which is the reality of non-grasping, which is a dimension of peace, ever present, always available. But it's a, it's a, a dimension of peace that's often obscured by being uh, gr- held by the grip of our normal patterns of, of seeking happiness. So uh, the unsatisfactoriness of, of experience really is tied to its impermanence. It's not that things aren't pleasant and that pleasant things can't be enjoyed. Don't, don't mishear me on that. You can definitely enjoy tomorrow's cup of coffee, coffee if you like coffee. You can enjoy your dinner. You can enjoy your conversations and your loved ones, all that. Like, please, please don't negate any of that. It's just that once we realize that these things in our life, these entities in our life cannot fill that that hole in us that's looking for lasting satisfaction, we start to change how we relate to all of those things and and really turn in uh, with a new strategy. Now, the third characteristic, which I'll just hint at tonight, we've we've, we've talked about it in different ways in in previous weeks, Uh, but the third characteristic is that when we really see everything changing and unsatisfactory or incapable of providing lasting peace, um, we start to also see the third facet of all conditions or all experiences in that they are not what the Buddha called they're not self. Meaning, uh, and this means a very specific thing. So he's not saying that you, the human being sitting on the other side of this screen, isn't there. He's not saying that. It's, he's simply saying that when we really look into our experience, we don't see any experience that is compatible with the notion of a permanent unchanging self now, i'll just sort of open up this topic a little bit and then we'll probably come back to it uh, going forward because it's a big one but the things we tend to take as ourself tend to be sensations we sort of define ourselves by sensations, feelings, ideas, aspirations, thoughts. And we tend to see ourselves as the owner of those thoughts. There's a, there's, a, there's a separate me that is having all of that experience. And uh, when we look for that, when we look for the knower or the experiencer, that which experiences these changes, changing uh, flow of experience all we get is more experience and i try, try to say this back ways back there where um, the knowing can only know the known if you will our knowing mind can only know the known meaning the objects of experience it can never know itself we can rest into it. We can we can sort of sense it. We can feel it. We can you know, rest into it as a as a as a, a, a deep level of our being. But when we rest into it, it's, we don't get any alert like a sensation that says this is your true self. We don't get a thought that says this is your true self. A sensation, a thought, anything we think about it is just more of the impermanent, non-self stuff we think it is. It's a Tao that can't be talked about, the Tao that can't be named. So 
the Buddha just points this out so that we don't we we catch ourselves if we tend to uh, fixate on an experience, thinking that that's who and what we are. And so it's a, it's a it's sort of a, I think a, an antidote to any kind of fixation of identity that humans are prone to, which will inevitably become the seed or the cause of future suffering if we're attached to it too too deeply. So from a wisdom perspective, if we come back to the the, the central idea of, of, of relational aspects of practice, we're developing compassion, the heart aspect of our, of, of our being, um, listening to the sounds of the world, our world, and we, and we contrast that against the perceptual side of practice where we're developing a deeper wisdom through our direct perception that everything we experience is changing, everything we experience is incapable of giving permanent lasting satisfaction, and that within this changing flux, there is no permanent entity that we can say, that's me, because even that statement is just a changing impermanent thought. That knowledge... The, the wisdom is what balances the heart's connection. It's the wisdom that allows us to fully open to our heart and not be overwhelmed by what we experience because we know nothing we experience and nothing that we feel compassionate for is permanent. It's changing. It's not me. It's not self. It's unsatisfactory. But if we only have the wisdom side, we only hang out in the wisdom camp and say, oh, it's not me. That's just attachment. That's, that's impermanent. That's unsatisfactory. That's not me. To hell with it all. We all hang out in that, the wisdom side of the two wings. We, we can fall or lapse into kind of callous indifference. So callous indifference would be the, um, the dark uh, corruption of wisdom here, if you will. Where being burnt out and kind of always worried about everything would be the would be the more the the, um, the corrupted version of of pure compassion, but the two balance each other. The two the two let let us um, let let the bird of our being fly and soar. So it it can be helpful um, just to be aware of these sort of two wings of practice: the compassion side and relational side, and to Oh, sorry, the compassion side and the wisdom side, and to check in from time to time with yourself, like what seems to be getting emphasized here? Does it feel like I'm tilting more into the compassion side and kind of getting flooded and overwhelmed by everything I'm feeling and wanting to re uh, release from suffering? Or does it feel like you're kind of really getting clear and and kind of impassive in 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 the in the in a position of knowing things changing, but feeling cut off, distant? Are unattached to it in a way that you're 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 um, you're pulling away and kind of getting callous and indifferent to what you're experiencing. How can we bring these two things together? Um, so I'm going to turn this into a, an instruction shortly, but I just want to share with you uh, kind of a, a very powerful statement from the late uh, Indian sage Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was a, a householder uh, teacher from India the last century who said this, he said, love tells me I am everything and wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. And this is this will set it to a conventional mind, to, the, to our intellects, to our rational being. 
a statement like that sounds completely nonsensical and, and, um, and, and ludicrous. But there's a paradox here, which is nonetheless resolved in an, ex an awakened experience of the heart. That when we're really awake, we feel intimately connected to everything that's occurring. So much, something, and there's such a strong connection. The, the, the sense of being a separate self from the experience that you're connected to is not there. That the sense of separation dissolves, and there's just a sense of unified identity with whatever you're experiencing, whether it be your laptop in front of you, the sound of a bell, a glass of water, a cat that walks in front of you, the sound of a, uh, a horn honk, whatever it is, is experienced as self, capital S self, the big me. But at the same time, wisdom, when we really look at all these things, we see that they're all changing. There's no permanent self in any of it. And it tells you that you're no thing, meaning you're no specific thing. And between the two, between those two statements, our life flows. Now, the way, um, there's many ways we've already been practicing that are trying to integrate these two dimensions of practice, the relational side of practice, the relational skills of good connection and kindness and compassion, with the perceptual skills um, of clear seeing. And I'm just gonna add a little bit more of an instruction to the perceptual side tonight, um, building on all the things we've already talked about. And if you're on the newer side, uh, don't feel like you're missing out. Uh, you can always go back and check out any of the previous talks um, in the library, um, but really wherever you jump in, and if you just stay with the simplicity of the things I'm trying to say, you'll be fine. So you, you don't feel like you, you have to go back too much if you, if you don't want to. But um, last week, I really, I, I think I've fully committed to this metaphor of, of all of us as meditators being like birds, rather than thinking we're trying to um, anchor and, and domesticate ourselves with um, with, with strong practice and clear instruction, my suggestion is that we, we can think of ourselves more like a wild bird that is developing the capacity to thrive and flourish within its world. And, um, and so the bird has permission to land on perches. And the perch metaphor is just any, any feature of your experience that, that is neutral enough so you can rest on it, you can feel that you're getting a little headspace on that, on that, with that experience. Um, you know, you, it can be a place of refuge to come to when things are more overwhelming or flooding at any point. Um, but by no means do you need to stay on the perch as a rule. That's a, it's a tool that you can come to at any point. Like, so you could just rest your attention on your hands, on your lap or your body sitting, uh, but you don't have to stay with that experience or come back to it reflexively as a rule. It's a tool to use as, and when you feel it's helpful to use it, uh, and then I mentioned last week that while we're on the perch, at some point, our unconscious mind will come in, carry us off into a stream of thought. And we're kind of carried away for a period of time before we wake up, before something or environment or internally, something sort of prods us awake and we realize that we're back sitting. So there's a whole phase where we're we're flying in a way. The bird, our meditative bird is, is flying, but flying unconsciously. And then we wake up mid-flight somewhere over a cliff, somewhere over a river, somewhere over a tree. We wake up mid-flight. And often, 
in many forms of meditation, there's a there's an implicit uh, lurch to get back to the perch. And sort of reflexive. I got I, this is wherever I'm flying. This is this is a waste of time. I need to get back to my perch and and and, and anchor or or ground myself. But here, um, rather than doing that, what I would recommend, and this is the sort of the, the added layer this week, is that um, you just take stock when you wake up and know that you're mid-flight somewhere. I'm going to recommend that you just simply take stock of what you're experiencing. And uh, there, there is a technique that you can use to do this. I'm going to mention the technique. And with all techniques, I just want to be clear, try the technique. If it's helpful, use it. If you try the technique for a while, it feels like it's, 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 it's clunky. It feels like it's getting in the way. It feels like it's just not serving you in any way. Put the tool and technique aside. So you're, you're under no obligation to use the suggested technique. But um, some of you that have done the, the, the retreat with us um, know that I've been, I added this last time, I think, where when the bird wakes up, if you've ever seen a bird fly, they're kind of flying. And then when they want to orient themselves in a, in a, in a direction, they'll flap their wings for a little bit. And I, I try to <laughs> dramatize this with my arms flapping and my, my wings flapping. So um, it occurred to me that just as a bird will do that, just as a bird will flap their wings to sort of orient, them, orient themselves in a particular direction or redirect themselves or get closer to a particular area they want to go, we can do that in our meditation figuratively where we kind of flap our mindfulness wings to take stock of various features of our experience. And to keep it simple tonight, I'm just going to say those, those, those various features of experience include the body, the mind, and our environment. Body, mind, and environment. So the way this works is just when we, we, we wake up to having to flying in, over something or within something, we can take stock by flapping our wings and take stock of our body for a moment. and just feel, okay, what's going on in the body? And whatever you notice is fine. And you can note a sensation in the body. You can note the pressure or tension or a movement or a temperature or an itch, anything that you notice in the body, you can make a simple uh, word word or two note of what you're aware of or a label. You could label like tension, tingling, moving, moving, breathing, uh, itching, aching, numbness, whatever it is. You can just make a light note of the body's experience for a moment or two. That's one flap. And the second flap would be to take stock of what's going on in the mind. And this can be a little bit trickier at first, but um, you know, are there are there any thoughts going on in your mind that you could you could label, like planning or remembering or or fretting or worrying, um, or is there a mood in the mind like irritation, calmness, pleasantness, annoyance, irritability, impatience, content? Is there a mood that you can track and, and, and identify? Um, and then after you've taken stock of your body and mind, then you can also check out your environment. And, and you can do that with your eyes open, but more often than not, that will be with eyes closed, where you might just listen to the field of, of sound within the environment. And you can note hearing if you hear a sound, or if you don't hear anything particular, just note quiet. 
the environment's quiet. And just as the bird will flap their wings a little bit and then return to an effortless keyword there, effortless gliding with your experience, uh, I recommend you we do the same thing. So if I were to dramatize this, and I, and I apologize to those of you that are just only listening, but if I were to dramatize this, I'm here I am meditating. And then as I sort of sway to the side, it's to indicate that I'm starting to drift and I'm off my perch now and I'm thinking about things I don't want to be thinking about. Oh my God, I'm lost in it. And then I, and suddenly I realized that I'm drifting. Like I heard it, I felt an itch on my forehead. That was just enough of a, of a sensation to bring me back. Now I'm back. Oh, okay. Uh, there's a tension in my shin. I know I was just annoyed, but now I don't feel anything. My mind feels very quiet. So I just check in with the quietude. And as I listen to the environment, I hear the very distant sort of hum of traffic. Then I'm going to glide again. So now in the gliding phase, you don't have to verbalize or articulate what you're aware of. If you don't, if you don't want to, you could, if you want to, there's a whole technique that just carries on with the noting, but you can drop the noting and silently glide with what you're noticing. And, and you can notice whatever you're noticing in a very fluid way. So you it might be a sensation. It might be a, a, a sensation in your foot. It might be then a sensation in your hip and then it might be a thought and then it may be a sound and your mind can very fluidly glide from one noticing to the next until you might find yourself back on the perch. Now that, as we covered last week, you might come to the perch, come to the perch voluntarily as a decision you make, or you might find yourself just coming to, you wake up on the perch. Your mind unconsciously took you back to the perch. Either way, when you're on the perch, and I'm gonna build on this more when we get into samadhi, which I keep threatening we'll talk about, we will be getting into samadhi more. But when you're on the perch, just appreciate the stillness that's there. Appreciate the calm uh, stillness that, that may likely be there when you feel your hands or your body just sitting. In other words, when you come to the perch, allow there to be a sense of simplicity, real simplicity, like nothing to do. This is, this is, it's just this. And from the perch, the whole cycle begins again. You drift off, wake up, flap the wings a few times, check in the body, still that aching pressure there. There's a little bit of worry in my mind. Still hearing that soft hum of traffic and then glide. Now, I said in the first iteration, I said you might land back on the perch. There's a, obviously there's, there's a chance that when you're gliding and just flowing with your moment-to-moment experience it's likely you could drift off again. So this is where it becomes, you don't have to necessarily come back to the perch ever, but when, when you're gliding, you drift off, you're drifting, 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 you wake up, you can just flap your wings again three times. So it's three simple notes of body, what's going on in the body, mind, and environment. And, and don't, you know, when you do it, when you, when you do that instruction, or you try to enact that instruction, it's not necessary to do it like a military drill sergeant. What's in your body, sir? There's tension in my right foot. What's in your mind? 
ambiguity, sir. <laughs> you don't have to be really rigid about it. It's more just, you know, take time in a relaxed way and just check it out. What, what seems to be alert in your body, what seems to be alert in your, alive in your mind, what seems to be alive in your environment. And the idea is that you're, by making the notes, by making those, those three simple mental notes, you're sharpening perceptual accuracy around what's happening with very mundane things. You're just sharpening your perceptual accuracy around very, very mundane things. And then once that, so that groove of perceptual accuracy has been aligned with through the noting, then you can let it happen by its own. That's why I encourage just to drop the noting after three, three times or so and let yourself glide with your experience and see what happens. So um, that was sort of the instructions folded into uh, the talk tonight, but I, I feel like the, the instructions I wanted to give tonight don't lend themselves as, as cleanly to being uh, introduced solely in the guided meditation. So we'll come now to a seated, seated practice. We'll come to our meditation and, and, and try out some of that suggested instruction. I think, and we'll sit a little bit shorter tonight, um, just so there's time for journaling and, and uh, discussion. So the sitting will be about 20, 20 plus minutes or so. So with your eyes closed, we'll begin. We enter the formal practice. So I always like to articulate the, the aspiration here. Which could be articulated as simply formally intending to develop kindness and wisdom. towards all experience. Developing kindness, compassion, and wisdom towards ourselves, towards our experience, and ultimately towards all beings and all, all others. And with that as our aim, we don't need to concern ourselves with trying to control our experience. We're not trying to seek out specific things. We're patiently letting our world reveal itself to us. And as our world is revealed, we come to know our world in a different way. And again, I mean our subjective experience of the world. What's it like, what the world is like for us. But we also develop or uncover a capacity to listen 
to our world fully. And letting ourselves be tender both towards ourselves and to our experience as we enter this process. Rigidity, harshness is just attempt to control or manipulate. And if that energy emerges of controlling or manipulating, we can be tender, receptive, and non-interfering with even that. And so as we sit with ourselves, it's helpful to uh, identify a perch or two where we can let our attention rest from time to time. Something neutral, usually away from the head is helpful. So your hands resting on your lap or your sense of your body sitting on the, on the cushion or the chair or the field of sound in general, all good perches that are neutral and, and non-invasive. from here, as we've explored, drifting off occurs, drifting off occurs for everybody. And for now, we can just let it be. You don't have to stand at the gate trying to, uh, to function like a, bo a bouncer at the gate, keeping drifting off at bay or away. If it comes, it comes. Let's let ourselves drift into something. You have freedom to, to think about it, explore it. But from the, in the transition from drifting off to waking up, when, when you come to recognizing that you're awake again, that, meaning you're self-conscious of the fact that you're sitting in meditation, And when your mind naturally shifts into a yang mode of knowing, the very beginning of that phase of being awake, take inventory or take stock of your body, your mind, your environment. Simple note or two of what's going on at each level.
and then from that check-in, from that taking of inventory, you can just let yourself glide along like a, like a, a bird gliding through the air. Gliding with the unfolding experience. Returning to the perch consciously or unconsciously. When you're experiencing perch times, all I'll say is today is just to appreciate what that's like. That's an appreciation for the simplicity of being with the perch. I'll leave the instructions there for now. Enjoy your flight, enjoy your rest. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening today. I hope today's talk on compassion and wisdom starts to infuse uh, your own practice with some renewed energy and vitality. And um, I hope we get to connect again soon. So thank you again today for your presence. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for your attention. Um, I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. And until then, please stay strong, stay safe, and practice on.